Fortress on a Hill with Henry, Danny, Kagan, and Giovanni. Welcome to Fortress on a Hill, a podcast about U.S. foreign policy, anti-imperialism, skepticism, and the American way of war. I'm Henry. Thank you for uh, joining us today. With me is uh, Kagan and Giovanni. Tell us, how are you doing? Hey, hey, hey. Excellent. Right here. And uh, we are joined by uh, Camilo. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm having word trouble today. Camilo Mejia. 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 My wife's from Mexico. This shouldn't be this hard for me. Um, he was uh, born in Nicaragua, but moved to the U.S. as an adolescent. Shortly after graduating high school, he joined the U.S. military and eventually deployed to Iraq in 2003. After five months in active combat, including posts in Baghdad, I'm assuming this is Haditha, but they, they didn't spell it right, um, Al-Assad and Al-Ramadi, he was sent home on leave where he recognized and publicly condemned the Iraq war as criminal and immoral. He was subsequently court-martialed and charged with a desertion and sent to serve nine months of incarceration at Fort Sill uh, in Oklahoma. Uh, Mejia lives in Miami and he continues to speak out against uh, U.S. imperialism. Uh, Camilo, welcome to Fortress on Hill. Thank you, thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I'm gonna let uh, let Giovanni take over here, and uh, let's uh, let's talk about Nicaragua. Awesome. Yeah. So before we started the recording, uh, uh, we we're having like a side conversation, uh, and I thought it would be interesting if we get the conversation we're you know uh, we're having on recording. So you know, tell us everybody can hear. Uh, so Mejia, Mejia, now we go way back. Uh, we've done a couple of trainings together, uh, mostly about hybrid warfare. Uh, we have done workshops and we've had done, uh, and we have been invited by, by different organizations to do these workshops on hybrid warfare, but I've never met Mejia in person, right? I've always met him in person about two years ago, but, uh, <laughs> but it didn't kind of work out. The schedule didn't kind of work out. I was in, I was in his neighborhood. I was like probably about what, you said about what, 10 minutes away from you I was. Um, so when I called him, I didn't know where he lived. So I just decided to call him and he said, well, you live, you're about 10 minutes away from my home. But, uh. How are you gonna be in the area? He said, "Well, I'm gonna try. You know, just here for a day trip here in Miami, and uh, uh, you know, and uh, you know, maybe after work we can we can get together. But I think you had you had a meeting afterwards, and then we we'll call me again, saying it's going the meeting's going around a little bit late, but I couldn't stay in Miami, so I had to leave. So we weren't able to meet, but we've had several conversations. We have, you know, dived into different type of um, you know studies, uh, particularly hyper warfare, which is the new way, just like like uh, Henry." Uh, mentioned earlier, which is the way that the United States makes work nowadays, you know, uh, you know, uh, multifaceted, you know, but different means and, and different ways, you know, to, to inflict pain on other, on other nations. So we've done, we've done, um, work on that, but I've known about Camilo since probably since about 2004, I believe 2003 or 2004, when the Iraq invasion, because Camilo was, a it was a, a dissenter early. It's one of the earliest, uh, dissenters of the Iraq war uh, coming back from Iraq. And uh, in this part, I'm gonna let him uh, talk a little bit more about that. But I heard about him uh, through a, a piece that was done by NPR talking about 
uh, uh, the process and and what was going on with Camilo Mejia. Hey, you want to share a little bit on that? Yeah, definitely. Um, so with with the Iraq War, um, that was really towards the end of my eight year military contract. I'd been in the military in active duty first um, since 1990, 1997, 1998, I want to say. Well, 2003 was eight years for me. So, no, 1990, I want to say 1995. Yeah, 1995, I joined active duty. And then, um, well, I got out of active duty and to finish my eight years, you know, I joined the Florida National Guard because that gave me the opportunity to continue to to serve as an infantryman. And I didn't want to have to go to, um, you know, to any other school. I wanted to remain a, an infantryman and just finish my time and at home and go to college. And by that time, I already had matured a lot. You know, I was a- about to graduate from college. I was already reading and questioning a lot, um, getting into geopolitics. I knew that we didn't really have a solid case to go after Iraq. Um, but at the same time, you know, I was about one semester away from graduating at the University of Miami. And I had already started to get ready for grad school. And part of me didn't think that the war was actually going to happen. You know, at, at our level back then, there was so much opposition, you know, international opposition, even NATO was not was not for it at least not in the beginning, major allies like France and, and Germany, uh, even Mexico, you know, which basically always did what the U.S. said. Uh, the, the Dixie Chicks were against it, you know, like there was so much opposition, millions of people marching against the war all, you know, against, against the war all over the world. Uh, so I guess, you know, I was somewhat naive, you know, when I believe that, you know, it's just going to be a huge show of force. We'll be there a few months and then, you know, we'll we'll come home heroes and continue on with our lives. That unfortunately didn't play out as I thought. The first mission that we had in Iraq was uh, this place uh, called Al-Assad, which was a bombed out um, Iraqi Air Force base. And we basically, you know, uh, to be blunt about it, we tortured people there. We tortured uh, prisoners who were, you know, had been Bedouins, basically, you know, wrong time, wrong place. And that, that was the, the beginning of the war experience for me. Prior to that, we had been in Jordan, um, where we had been uh, protecting some uh, Patriot sites where, you know, the U.S. had uh, made a deal with uh, the Jordanian king that we would um, intercept any Scud missiles that Saddam Hussein might, might send to, uh, to, to Israel, which is something that, that happened in the first, uh, in, during the Gulf War, that, you know, to get Israel to retaliate and that way encourage other Arab nations to join the fight. So this time around, the U.S. said to, to the Jordanian king, you know, let me use your desert as a staging ground and you know, I'll, I'll set up some uh, Patriot missile sites on your on your territory and intercept any Scud missiles, you know, that Saddam Hussein might might want to launch, that might you know fall in your territory. So we had this secret deal with the Jordanians, and our mission, our first mission was to basically protect these missile missile sites. But then after that, you know, very soon after the war started, we 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 went to Iraq. I want to say April. 
yeah, April, April, May, we um, we arrived in, in Iraq. We spent some time at uh, Baghdad International. And then from there, we went to Al-Assad. And then at Al-Assad, you know, that was the first the first mission. So from that point on, you know, obviously my my opposition to to the war is not only political, only ideological, only based on what I had read. But now we're we're in it. Right. And we're we're torturing people. It's not something we're reading about. This is not some news analysis. You know, it's not something we're we're reading on a magazine. Uh, we're actually there and we're doing that stuff. And 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 from there, it just got worse. You know, uh, we went to Haditha where we learned of some pretty nasty things that happened, you know, atrocities that were committed there. Uh, and then from there, we went to to Ramadi, where I spend most of my time. And and that's where where a lot of the, the well, where the bulk of the war crimes took place. Uh, but in an environment, I mean, obviously an environment where, you know, you're you're struggling to stay alive, basically, you know, you're you're a moving target every day of your life. Anything that you do could could result in you being, you know, blown to pieces, you know, even going to take a shit at the at the uh, at the latrine or taking a shower, which you couldn't do in the daytime because it's too hot, you know, 104, 110 degree temperatures in this um, metal water tanks, you know, would give you blisters if you took a shower at that time. So we had to go at night when, which is when we had indirect fire attacks. Um, and so in, in an environment like that, you don't really think morally that much. I mean, I did to some degree, but, you know, you're trying to, um, to foresee, you know, where the, the next attack might come from. And, you know, you're trying to keep your men alive. And in, in my particular case, um, and this is something that got me into hot water with my, my chain of command, I always, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say that I led my men away from fire rather than into battle, um, away from battle because the things that we were doing were so arbitrary. And it was so clear also that we had people in our chain of command who were so bent on getting, you know, the, the coveted awards, you know, like the combat infantry batch or, you know, any other medals, you know, like uh, officers oftentimes, you know, they view war and combat as, you know, career opportunities. And in, in our particular case, you know, we had ma uh, captains and uh, majors and we had lieutenant colonels and colonels who had spent a lifetime in the military and had no combat experience. And so for them, it was really key to take advantage of the, the possibility. And we did a lot of things um, that were in violation of our training, in violation of, um, you know, the, the, the rules of engagement, uh, pretty much everything that we were told, which wasn't much to begin with, uh, we violated in order to, to, to instigate the resistance into, into battle and, you know, the, the, the bulk of the... Uh, the casualties were suffered by the civilian population. And so long story short, my um, initial opposition to the war, which had been very political, very ideological, became something very personal and became, became something very spiritual. And um, that's one of the things that I think that's tearing us apart. You know, once, once we get home is the moral injury. You know, the things that we do that violate our moral code which is, you know, this written law that we have that guides, you know, our, 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 our behavior, you know, our conscience, you know, and violating that, that moral contract that we have with ourselves 
is what I think that that's that's what getting a lot of people more more than than post traumatic stress disorder because I think post traumatic stress disorder at the end of the day is a it's a fear response you know to a very tra- traumatizing event, but moral injury is more about the things that we but that we have a hard time forgiving ourselves for because we didn't do what we were supposed to do or we did nothing when sh- when we should have done something. Um, so coming home for me just basically just gave me the um, the safety and the peace of mind to be able to go back to those moral questions, no longer on survival mode, you know, thinking that, you know, anything that, that I do would be my, my last action. And that's when you face your demons, you know, when you, when you're home and, you know, nobody's shooting at you and, you know, um, you don't have to deal with improvised explosive devices or indirect fire or anything like that. And then you you know, you have to come to terms with what you did. And and for me, that was a really difficult thing. I had a small child. She's 22 now. She was three at the time, four. Um, and I didn't know if I could be a dad to her because of all the things that I had done. You know I mean? How do you teach a, a, a kid right from wrong when you have done so much wrong yourself? Um, and just like all these questionings, you know, that began to torment me. And eventually, you know, I realized that I was a conscious objector. It was something that I fought mentally because I said, you know, I've already been there. You know, we, we were in combat. We tortured people. We killed people. It's too late for me to be a conscientious objector. Not knowing that it's, it's really the very experience of war what really makes you be anti-war. I don't think there's any, anyone who can be more anti-war than a combat veteran, you know, who has actually experienced the horror of war. But I didn't see it that way at the time. You know, I thought that it was too late for me. I was tainted. You know, I was already a bad person. But um, I got some counseling and I started writing a conscientious objector application. And that was a journey for me, a spiritual journey to come to terms with all the bad shit that we had done. And, you know, I, I was able to get over my fear also of what the military would do to me if I spoke out against the war because I began to think about really what humanity had sacrificed and what people were still sacrificing, you know, to oppose war. I came across people like Brian Wilson, you know, who lost his legs trying to stop uh, weapons shipments to Central America uh, back in the days. And, you know, people who had lost everything to war, you know, um, victims of war, victims of landmines that were left behind. Um, And, that gave me perspective, you know, that whatever happened to me could not be as horrible as what so many people had lost or had gone through. And, you know, I, I felt empowered to speak out and, and say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to fight this war. I'm not, I'm not going to, uh, to be a party to, to this supreme war crime against humanity. And, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to fight your war anymore. And of course, I was the first combat veteran to do that at the time. There were other uh, objectors, you know, you talk, talked about NPR and we have, we have a couple of uh, um, early members of, back then it was called the Iraq Veterans Against the War, but Stephen Funk was one of them, a Marine uh, who came out, out of the closet and out against the wars, which took a lot of, a lot of freaking courage, you know, for a Marine to come out as gay and anti-war. 
he was actually um, just getting out of jail as I was going through my journey. And then we also had an Air Force captain, Stephen Potts, and he came out on NPR as well um, before um, getting deployed. He never got deployed. Uh, but I was the first one to speak from personal experience and, and talk about what was going on in Iraq, on the ground in Iraq. And, and so it was a pretty, pretty big deal, I guess, you know, for, for the media. Um, the media was not what it is today. There was still a little bit of objectivity, you know, like the media was not so co-opted as it is now. And, you know, the story got a lot of traction, uh, both in the U.S. and internationally. And I think that that ended up, uh, you know, working to my advantage to have that, you know, that many eyes on my case. And that included Amnesty International, which I'm not a fan of anymore. But uh, back then, you know, they adopted me as a prisoner of conscience and they issued a warning that if I was incarcerated, that they would launch a campaign to secure my, my safety and my release. And, you know, I had a sham of a court martial that lasted three days. You would thought Osama bin Laden was being tried because of the amount of um, uh, security around um, the courthouse. That was in um, Fort Benning, Georgia. No, I'm sorry, Fort Stewart. That was Fort Stewart. And yeah, I was found guilty of desertion. They put me away on a 12-month sentence. I did nine in Fort Seal. And then I got out uh, nine months later and you know, wrote the book. Road from Aramadi, which I think you guys have a copy of, and began doing counter-recruiting work, joined Iraq Veterans Against the War, Veterans for Peace, and I've been doing um, anti-war organizing and activism ever since. We get asked often what people can do to help support the podcast. One really powerful way to help us grow and reach more people is to leave us a review. You can do that on iTunes, which is the best place to leave a review. iTunes does reach the most people these days. The next best place is Facebook. Go to our Fortress on a Hill Facebook page and look for the Reviews tab. Money is tight these days for everyone, especially in the lingering shadow of COVID. Penny-pinching to make it through the month often doesn't give people the funds to contribute to a creator they support. So we consider it the highest honor that folks help us fund the podcast in any dollar amount they're able. Patreons is the main place to do that. And for supporters who can donate $10 a month or more, they will be listed right here as an honorary producer, like these fine folks. Fahim Shirazi, James Obar, James Higgins, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Janet Hansen, Tristan Oliver, Daniel Fleming, Michael Karen, Zach H., Ren Jacob, Howard Reynolds, Rick Coffey, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so very much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt for some great Fortress merch. And now, let's get back to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I, was, I was also in that. I was actively back then as well. Um, 
and I was actually in Fort Benning. Um, I was at a, I was in instructor status. I was um, at the uh, what formerly called School of the Americas, which is uh, they got renamed to went, uh, Western Hemisphere Institute for Security and Cooperation. I remember reading about your story, hearing about your story through NPR, because I was going through the same thing. What you just described, right? I was going through the same thing at a time already hit 10 years in the military at the time. And right there and then, uh, at the beginning, uh, I didn't think the, that the war was going to happen because uh, um, I was a military, I was a military uh, dependent when the first Gulf War happened. And I was inside of a military base and I saw the deployments. I saw how everything ended. And, and it was about 100 days, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So I figured it was going to be something similar. Uh, but you know, uh, but but you said mentioning seeing all the resistance, seeing all the protests and everything like that. You know, I didn't think it was going to happen. But when it happened, I was actually in when shock and awe started. I was actually teaching, and my 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 supervisor interrupted my class and to show the students what was happening. And had a big TV in the classroom and turn on the TV and watch. So the way we watch all the. Uh, the bombing and everything, right? I was daytime on our side, it was nighttime on their side. And it was like, uh, he was so excited and ecstatic about it, like as as the group won the Super Bowl, you know? <laughs> you know, and I recall and I recall thinking as as he was being so emotional, so so excited about it, so happy about it that, that was happening. I recall thinking about um you know, am I surrounded by psychopaths? You know, you know, this is psychotic, you know, and right then, then that's when I decided that I couldn't continue in the military. At the time I was 10 years in the military already. So it was like, uh, right at the hawk, you know, you know, 10 more years, I would have been retired. Uh, but you know, at that time, you know, I decided that, you know, that would be my last investment and that was, that was it. Uh, yes. Yeah. Anybody else want to share before we continue? Want to add anything? Um, I, I wonder about the, the experience of the soldiers that were under you when you came out, when, you know, that, that, um, what our leaders do really matters, even, you know, it, it, it affects us deeply. Um, and I just would, I would ask is, you know, are you, are you still in touch with any of those guys? Did they, um, you know, what did they say about that period of their lives, you know, in terms of, of you as a leader and what um, what your choice to dissent did? I mean, was, you know, how did how did how did they view it? Yeah, definitely. I actually had um, a, a very interesting experience with two of them about a month ago. Uh, no, actually, two months ago, we uh, we went to a firing range. I hadn't seen this guy since. 2003, 2004, around that time. And, uh, you know, we reconnected and I said, yeah, let's, let's, let's get together. Let's do something. And they said, let's go to a firing range. So I wasn't really sure if, you know, how mad they were at me, if they were going to try to shoot me or something. Uh, but no, we have fun. We had a really great time. Um, mixed feelings, you know, to be honest with you, because obviously we were very, very close. In Iraq, we went through a lot of shit together, combat, you know, we survived a lot. We did a lot of bad shit together. Um, but there was also a sense of betrayal from the chain of command and from the entire war experience as well. So they, 
one of them did not, it was two of them. Uh, we were in, in, in touch on the phone with a third. Two of them were okay with the whole thing. One of them was still somewhat angry um, because to him, uh, once you're wearing the uniform, that's it. If you're wearing the uniform, you do what you're told, whether you like it or not, and that's the end of it. And he he holds a lot of resentment towards me, but he also holds a lot of resentment towards the military um, because he does not, he's messed up, you know, he, he um, I think he's on a hundred percent disability and he has severe post-traumatic stress and other issues as well, you know, from our service in, in Iraq. Um, Prior to that, my, my contact with people in my unit uh, was in the context of the court-martial where people from my squad came and testified. And again, you know, mixed feelings because we had been very close, um, very close to each other and survived a lot of shit, gone through a lot of shit together. Um, I think that there's a sense that I did what I did because I felt that I had to, that I... Um, I was always a person who was questioning everything. You know, if, if we were given an order, for instance, to, to engage a civilian vehicle for crossing a line, you know, en route to, to a hospital, I would say, we're not doing that. If you want to open fire, that's the order. You won't get in trouble. If you disobey that order, you could get in trouble, but I'm not going to open fire because I have to live with this shit. You know, we're the ones pulling the trigger and this is a hospital route. And lo and behold, we have families go through that route. And I would always question things, you know, and, and if we had to set up a traffic control point, you know, I would make sure that we had cam lights, that we had barricades, that we had concertina wire, that, you know, we, we fired warning shots. You know, I would do absolutely everything in my power to ensure that there was no contact with anyone, enemy, civilians, whatever the case may be. I would question the soundness of missions when we'd go out there blind, basically with no OPs, with no, you know, presence patrols, uh, in some cases, you know, without evac routes or anything like that. Uh, it was like we were basically going out of our way to get killed, uh, to then unleash the power of the U.S. military and, you know, instigate more firefights and things like that. So I would always question things like that. So it wasn't... a a complete shock to them that I decided not to go back because I was questioning a lot of, a lot of the things. And also because I was protecting them, not only their safety by trying as much as I could to evade con having contact, but also because I was thinking about the moral part and I was thinking about who is going to have to live with this crap. You know, it's us, this is our choice. Um, so I think that there was a recognition of that, you know, that I did what I did because I felt morally compelled to do what I had to do. And so in that sense, I do think that there's a lot of understanding, but there's also a lot of resentment in the sense that, you know, we were like a family and I was a father figure for many of them that were younger. They hadn't been in the military that long. Some of them were only uh, National Guard, you know, so their training was not on par with uh, active duty training. Um, so there was a sense of abandonment, you know, from some of them, and there was some resentment. But I think in the end, um, we're still very close to to one another. It's not the same with the chain of command. I think my captain, who's now a, a lieutenant colonel, really hates my guts. My first sergeant hates my guts. Um, I think my LT ha hates me as well. 
but the men, you know, the men who were in my squad, I, I was a squad leader. The men who were in my squad, I was fired from my first position as a squad leader. I was fired from a whole platoon because I was questioning a lot of what they were doing. You know, they were going after this, this guy. Coincidentally, it's one of the ones that I went out with about two months ago. And I began to question, you know, I began to say, you know, look, like we're going to combat with these kids, you know, like the last thing we want is for them to hate us. And, you know, we're like a family out here and we need to correct whatever we need to correct like a family, you know, not with punishment and shit like that. And they felt like I had not injected enough testosterone in my leadership style. And so they got rid of me. And so I, you know, on my, when I, um, when, when we end up in Iraq, I'm already on my second um, squad leader position. And, you know, that um, both of them, I think that for both squads, you know, we, we got to, to get really close, you know, because I never, I never felt like I had to be punitive. I never felt like I had to, to put my boot on people's faces, you know, to make them fear me in order to follow me. I felt like you know, they had to know that I was there for them and that I respected them and that, you know, their lives were in my hands and my life was in their hands. And so we established that type of relationship um, in Iraq, you know, with both both squads. So, of course, there was going to be some resentment and there was going to be a sense of abandonment. And that was one of the hardest things for me also to do. But it's also one of the things that works against you, you know, that they use this whole sense of family against you and say, hey, you have to go back out there and you have to do it. And like, once you get into the media circus, you know, that's one of the things that they throw at, that they throw at you, you know, they tell you all the men in your squad and like all the fallen and whatnot. And I'm like, well, why don't you go ask Cheney that question, ask Bush that question, you know, ask Rumfeld, you know, I didn't put them in that situation, you know, but at the end of the day, we have to live with our choices. You know, we have to live with uh, the things that we did or that we failed to do. And that's, that's a personal choice. I feel like we committed a lot of war crimes. We did a lot of harm to the Iraqi people, but I would never judge any of the men that I served with because the choice that I made was a very personal choice. And I respect that they stayed. I respect that, you know, many of them felt the same way that I felt, but, you know, they had this sense of duty that said, you know, while you're wearing a uniform, you have to do what you're told and you have to stay. And I respect that, you know, I, I, I disagree with it personally. I think that um, you know you you could you could um, you could bring this into any war where there have been war crimes. You you could bring this to Nazi Germany. You could bring this into you know Mussolini's military. You could bring this into you know any any situation where there have been horrible atrocities. And you know what soldiers will say is you know we're following orders. That's not good enough for me, and it wasn't good enough for me back then. It's not good enough for me now. Um, but I think I've made my peace with it. And I think the men in my squad have made their peace with it. And, and, and I think we're okay now. I think the, the, the choice of the all volunteer force uh, after Vietnam to move from where guys would go on deployments without connection to the home unit in any way, you went home. I mean, you literally went home versus Iraq and Afghanistan, where exactly what you're describing is that, you know, you go, with this group of guys, you train up with them, you go there with them, you come home with them. And it creates this family mentality, however positive or toxic anybody anybody wants to see it. But it makes you hold on in a different way. It makes you, you 
express yourself in a, in a different way. And I think that that was a very deliberate choice, whether anybody wants to say it or not, to try to make sure that those ties, those uniform ties are that much stronger and that much harder to break off of. But I, I, I must say, dude, I, I think you gave a, fun, a f- fucking fantastic example to your men and, and to, and especially that made it clear that it was your choice, you know, is that it was, it was, you know, and, and a hard one, a very hard one. I mean, you know, you were in, in, uh, at fucking sill for, for nine months. I mean, it, it, um, but, uh, powerful stuff, man. Yeah. Um, I think one of the, uh, one reasons I think we ended up connecting Camilo is because, um, uh, we have a shared interest and our shared interest, it has been, you know, militarism, U.S. militarism and activity in Latin America. Uh, and, uh, particularly, uh, your country of origin, uh, Nicaragua, and also my, uh, my country's of origin, Dominican Republic also has a shared history as well, which also, you know, simultaneously. Uh, was happening with, you know, within the invasion occupation of both of our countries, both of the migrant public and, and, and the, uh, and Nicaragua and law, law, uh, uh, occupations, uh, and the aftermath of the occupations, which is, uh, after the, the U S troops withdrew from both the migrant public and Nicaragua, right. They left behind strong, they left behind, uh, a, a, a dictatorship to to uh to suppress the population but also to uh keep uh you know uh, safeguard american interests in those particular two countries right and i'm talking about uh nicaragua for example was invaded and it was part of the of the what the so-called banana wars uh you know when banana wars is because uh you know nicaragua was considered a banana country uh, it was the same as the Dominican Republic and all the Central American countries because the United Fruit Country, United Fruit Company, uh, had a lot of interest, a lot of influence in those countries, and they and they they uh, imported a lot of bananas out of those countries, right? So that's that's hence the term Banana Republic comes from uh, because it was ran by the United Fruit Company, which is an American company. Uh, but uh, I'm talking about Nicaragua. You know the the invasion, uh, I believe, happened in 1910. Uh, all the way to nineteen to nineteen twenties, uh, and you know the occupation and the Republic was nineteen sixteen. It ran all the way to to the nineteen twenties. Um, in the case of uh, Nicaragua, when they withdrew, left behind the Somoza family, which ruled for about another thirty years, and and in the case of the Dominican Republic, uh, left behind the Torillo family, which they ruled for another thirty years. Uh, can you? And that pretty much sparked because I know you said you did a lot of work. You've done a lot of work since your experience in Iraq. You did a lot of work in anti-war and anti-recruitment, et cetera. But you also done a lot of work in, in bringing uh, education of, of hybrid war for U.S. activities in, in Latin America. Uh, what we're seeing today, you know, violence and aggression against your country still, you know, in 2022. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Um, the great Dave Klein, who was a longtime uh, president of Veterans for Peace, and he was one of the original uh, Vietnam veterans against the war activists. You know, he uh, at one point, I think he ran the Olio Strut 
which was a, a GI coffee shop. Uh, but I heard him uh, talk once about the uh, the awakening of the anti-war soldier, right? When you go from being a gung-ho, you know, young guy, you know, out there in Nam or Ramadi or, you know, whatever the case may be, and you realize um, that you start with this sense of betrayal, you know, that's grounded in your own experience. And that's akin to getting punched in the face and, you know, falling face down, you know, in, in the mud. And you become an anti-war soldier as you get up and you wipe the mud off your eyes and you start seeing the larger picture. That's part one of our discussion with Camilla. Join us for part two, which will drop in about a week. We'll be discussing Nicaragua, hybrid warfare, and Camilla's advocacy for the Sandinista movement there. It's another amazing episode you don't want. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. Ah. Uh.